Our God is the God of the sunshine and the rain, the God of the hills and the valleys, the God of the slave and the free, the God of the fixed and the broken, the God of the rich and the poor, the God of the grieving and the anxious, the God of the married, the single, the divorced, the God who is the extender of dignity, a dispenser of grace, an initiator, inviter, protector, friend, a God whose grace gets lower than our lowest low, a God who desires for you to reach for him, and when you are too weak to reach for him, he is a God who reaches for us. Rich Velotis in his book, and I've quoted this a number of times over the last few weeks, but he talks about how the word remember is one of the most important words in the entire Bible. That every generation needs to remember what it is God has done in the past and what it is God has done in your life so we have something to pass on to the next generation. We're in a sermon series right now called Storylines. We're looking at these altars of remembrance, times throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where you have people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you could go read events in the lives of Saul and Samuel, where they set up these altars that are meant to bear witness to the activity of God in their life, so that the next generation will ask questions about why these stones are set up, why this altar is here, and it tells a story of God's faithfulness. And we do this stuff all around our county. I mean, today you could go and you could visit altars of remembrance. You could visit memorials of those who died in the yellow fever epidemic in 1878. Or Tom Lee's monument that honors a hero of an event that happened around a century ago. Or you could go see uh, uh, sites that are now called lynching sites. And you could go visit a lot of different historical markers. You can go to cemeteries and you can learn about people. Like we do this. And you do this in your own life where it may not even be out way out there in Shelby County somewhere, but right there in your home, you set up pictures and frames to remember events, stories, and people, or photo albums, or family videos, because there are things we do not want to forget and we don't need to forget. I had a chance last week to go to Athens, Greece to visit one of the missionaries that we support, Dino. And Dino and I had about five days together. I just went over there to, to encourage one of our brothers. I know it's been a hard year for a lot of us. And they still are not meeting, uh, they still are not allowed to meet in person uh, uh, with their church. So they're still on Zoom as they have been for almost a year and a half. So Dino and I had five days where we visited a lot of different places spent a lot of time in a car together. And, the, and if you've ever been to Greece, I mean, you're standing on thousands of years of history. And there would be a lot of places that we would go and I would find myself asking where I am right now, is this a museum that marks a moment of history or is this a story that is still unfolding? If you ever get a chance to visit ancient places like Greece or the Holy Lands, it's a question that comes up quite a bit. Is this a place, a museum that marks a moment in history or is this a story that is still unfolding? Because I can go to the grave of Alexander the Great or see where the Battle of 300 was fought, and I can go to ancient Philippi or ancient Corinth, and I can see places where kings have been buried. I can see stories of how people used to bow down to gods like Zeus, though no one does that anymore. And many of these things are just moments of history. But when it comes to Jesus, this isn't a story that we celebrate a moment of history. It's a story that is still unfolding. 
Every, every Sunday when we gather as a church and we hold and we take the bread and the cup, this is not just a moment in history. This moment does not become a museum that you go when you read about something that happened 2,000 years ago. This is a story that is still unfolding. It is a story that is still performing in your life. The cross is still performing, though Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. The blood is still performing in the lives of people, washing away the sins of the world. When, it, when we talk about baptism, or you witness someone who was baptized, it's not just that they are submitting themselves to a story that happened 2,000 years ago. It's a story that is still unfolding. Some of you attended church camp a little over a week ago. I've heard great things that happened. I mean, I... I heard that most of you averaged about 10 hours of sleep a night. I heard there were three great meals a day that everyone had, and like no conflict for an entire week. It was amazing. But Rose of Sharon, is it just a week of connection to God, or is it a week of preparation for connection to God? The Rose of Sharon isn't some historical site where we go once a year to grow closer to God, it is a place that teaches us and prepares us to connect with God everywhere else because the same God who met many of you at Rose of Sharon a little over a week ago is the same God who was in this room, the same God who's in cafeterias and whatever school that you were a part of. So the last few weeks, what I've preached through and my friend Joshua Jackson from Nashville and Eric Wilson last week, we talked about stories and we talked about monuments and these altars of, of remembrance. And most of the stories that have been brought before you in the last six or seven weeks have been altars that have been built reminding people of a connection to God. And today I want to talk about all, an altar that was built in the book of Genesis that wasn't so much about a person having this moment with God, but it was a, supposed to be an altar of remembrance for unity for some form of reconciliation, or really an altar of remembrance so people wouldn't kill each other in the future. Because when sin entered into the world, sin has disrupted every relationship. I've said it before and I believe it with all my heart. There's no such thing as a secret sin in your life that doesn't have an impact on everyone else. Or you may think that a sin of pornography is something only you struggle with, but it impacts everyone else because it impacts you. You may think that things like greed or gluttony uh, it doesn't impact anyone else, but it impacts you, therefore it impacts everyone else around you. The first mention of the word sin in the New Testament, and I love this, I've preached this multiple times. The first mention of sin, the first time you see the word sin in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 1, 21. It's a prophecy spoken over the birth of Jesus in which it says, she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I love that the first mention of sin in the New Testament isn't about what sin does to you, it's what Jesus came to do to sin. Now, let's stay, let's stay right there just for a moment, all right? I want you to tell me, what's the first time you see the word sin in the Old Testament? Just somebody shout it out. Virtually shout it out. Anybody? First time you see the word sin in the Old Testament. It's not Genesis 3 in the fall. Though it's sin that happened in Genesis 3, you don't see the word sin in Genesis 3. The first time you see the word sin in the Bible, the entire Bible, is in Genesis chapter 4. Where you have Cain and Abel, this sibling rivalry, 
one brother's about to kill the other brother. And if you go ahead and go to that right here, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, it says this, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, first time you see the word sin in the Bible is right here. Sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And this right here is like a foreshadowing for the rest of humanity and for the rest of the book of Genesis. I remember I had a friend one time, he said, do you know one of the best ways to read the book of Genesis? What is it? And we could come up with a lot of different answers. Genesis is about the God, the creator, the God who is the covenant keeper, a God who is faithful. It's about generations. He said, I think one of the best ways to read the book of Genesis is that it is a book about brothers. Every narrative, you have brotherly sibling rivalry. You have brothers who kill each other, brothers who sell each other into slavery. You have, I mean, brothers who steal each other's birthrights. Like, it rarely goes well for the older brother in the book of Genesis. I mean, it is just generation after generation of conflict and dysfunction. You would not read Genesis to learn how to be a really good husband or wife or dad or, or mom or sibling. Like relationships are constantly at each other throughout the entire book of Genesis. The book of Genesis has a lot of heroes. And here's something I bet you don't know. If I were to ask you what are the five names in the book of Genesis that show up the most, I think most of you would get Abraham, you would get Joseph, and you would get Jacob, but you probably wouldn't get who's number four. And it's not Esau, it's not Sarah, it's not Noah, it's a guy named Laban. Laban gets more playing time in the book of Genesis than Isaac or Noah. You got a few chapters that talk about conflict between Jacob and Jacob's uncle, whose name was Laban. Now, I want to build the Genesis chapter 31 today, but before I get there, let's just talk about, let me just show you a few things just so you kind of know who Laban is. The first time you see Laban's name mentioned, he's a protective brother. He's a brother of Rebekah, who would become the wife of Isaac. He's a protective brother. Many of you, if you're not a single child, you probably had a protective sibling. I mean, I was the younger brother, but I was protective of my older sister. She would bring home boys from college. And I was set on trying to fight them in the front yard before they even came in the house. Like, you probably had protective siblings. He was a protective sibling. He wanted to sign off on it being okay for Rebecca to go and marry Isaac. And if you keep reading Genesis, you see that he, he was thought to be a safe place to be. So when Jacob and Esau, these two brothers, have conflict, and now Esau wants to kill Jacob... Jacob's mom thinks, okay, Uncle Laban's house will be a safe place for you. Go to Laban's house. So he was thought to be a really safe place to be. But then if you go to the next one, the third one, if you read this, like it was a safe place to be for about a month. In fact, Genesis 29, 14 tells you Jacob was there about a month. And that's when things got crazy. And I bet some of you have entered into a relationship before thinking it was a safe place to be, and one month in or six months in, you find out that the person you thought was a safe friend or a safe place to be really isn't safe at all. He immediately finds himself in deception when Laban says, Jacob, look, man, your family, and I know you're working here, and, and I, sh I should pay you something. And this is where you find out Laban is a really good businessman. This is what drove him in life, power and trying to work deals. 
What do you want to be paid? And Jacob could have responded without his 20 hours, 20, $20 an hour, four weeks vacation. Like he could have tried to lay out some plan. And Jacob's response is, I'll work for you, but I want to marry your daughter, which was his cousin. I mean, they, they did things the Arkansas way back in Genesis, all right? I mean, and those of you from Arkansas, you know I'm right. Like most of you come up after I tell Arkansas jokes and you're like, eh, I was a little upset, but you know, I actually had a third cousin who got married to a third cousin, right? Like, so, so you know what I'm talking about. And it was crazy the way this whole thing worked. He's a deceiver. He's a businessman. If you keep looking, I mean, he's like a really good deceiver. Because it, when it came time after seven years of Jacob working to be married to Rachel, when it came to the wedding night, Jacob thinks he's going to sleep the first night with Rachel, but he wakes up the next morning with Leah, which lets you know something. Laban's a really good deceiver. And let's just be honest, how drunk did Jacob have to be on his wedding night? Right? How wasted did he have to be to go to bed and wake up the next morning having realized he didn't actually go to bed with his wife? Like it was, it was a different woman who was there. So he's given Rachel after that and then has to work another seven years. Then you go on to see how Laban deceives Jacob again. And then Laban is actually deceived by Jacob. It's a whole story and relationship of deception. You read in verse chapter 31, verse 1, that J, uh, Laban and, and all of his family, they were jealous of Jacob. And then, then you also read about how Laban had all these household gods. So it's not that Laban is sitting there praying to Yahweh, the God of Abraham or Isaac or, or Jacob. He's praying to all these household gods. It is 20 years of conflict and dysfunction. 20 years of this. And Jacob had enough. Jacob decided he's going to take his wives and his maidservants and, and all of his children and, and they're just going to leave. He, he had enough. And here's one thing I love about this story. Because the name of God like, doesn't show up a lot in the Jacob Laban narrative. It's just a lot of dysfunction. But God's faithfulness hovers over all that dysfunction. The faithfulness of God hovers over what could be 20 years of relational conflict. The faithfulness of God doesn't go away. There are times where the faithfulness of God may be ignored by us. There are times we're not ready to receive it. But the faithfulness of God, just, it just keeps going. And there are times where I think the Bible's looking at us saying, Jerry Springer who? Like, really? Like, Jerry Springer would be a saint in some of these stories. This story after story of dysfunction and conflict... And Jesus knew all about this too, right? The people closest to Jesus betrayed him in times when he needed them the most. And throughout our lives, sometimes the pain that hurts the worst, it's not pain from somebody who lives across a sea or across an ocean or is an enemy of whatever country you live in. Sometimes the pain that hurts the worst is caused by those who have been closest to us. People who've lived in our own home, Maybe a relative, a friend, a co-worker, some environment that you find yourself in almost every day. Sometimes it's the pain that cuts the, the deepest. All right. So let me give you a test real quick. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put up a symbol of a shoe company. And I want you to tell me what the symbol is. You ready? Some of you may feel like you know shoe companies really well. So we're going to do a little game. And I know some shoe companies have changed their image and their symbol multiple times over the years. But let's just see how you would do. Somebody shout out. What is this? 
This is Reebok. How many of you owed a, owned a pair of Reebok pumps back in the days? Can I, anybody? I, okay, yeah. Tom Alexander, you got some Reebok pumps? Nice, man. All right. Let's go to the next one. Somebody tell me, what is this? Yeah, Converse. Used to be number one on the market. Right, the next one right here. Somebody tell me, what is this? Champion. The next one, I think all of you will probably get this one right here. Right, Nike, number one and by far right now. Anybody? Fila, right? Let's go to the next one here. Three stripes, what is it? Adidas. The next one? Puma. And the last one, anybody? <laughs> this is Geda. This is a German company. It was founded in 1919 by the Dassler brothers. Maybe you've read stories about them. There have been movies about these brothers. This was Adolf and Rudolf Dassler. They started making sneakers in 1919 in their home in Germany. About a decade later, they started making cleats, and they, they would give these to people who ran track and field. The company grew in just about 10 years to about 12 employees. They were doing all this out of a house. This was one of their first cleats. I think we may need to try to bring these back for the Harding Academy track team that Seth King leads right here. That would do some damage if you accidentally slid into somebody at second base with those right there. That would not feel good. Two stripes on them. This company really took off in 1936 in the Olympic Games that were held in Berlin. Because the Dassler brothers talked a few athletes into wearing these. One of them they talked into wearing them was Jesse Owen, the, the runner for the United States. And the company was on the brink of blowing up, spreading all over the globe. And then World War II came, and when it happened, Adolf Hitler came and took over their factory and made it into a weaponry. For, for, their, for a number of years, they used that factory not to make shoes or sneakers or cleats. They used that factory to make weapons for war. One of the Dassler brothers, Rudolf, was sent to war. Adolf stayed back home. Years went by and Rudolph ended up being imprisoned for a year. And when he was released from imprisonment, he came back home. And in 1948, they launched their company again. If you look at this next image, this was the house that was used for them to, to, to launch this company. And out of this place, out of this home, in the top right corner, they made shoes for a number of years. And something happened in 1948 where the brothers split. And when they split, they never talked to each other again until the day they died. When they died, they were buried in opposite sides of the cemetery. They hated each other. And for years, all the books that have been written, the movies that have, been, uh, that have told this story, people don't know why they, why they split up. They don't know. There's speculation. Some of the speculation is that Adolf wanted to run the company by himself. So when Rudolf uh, went to war, that Ad Adolf told the United States Army where he was located so they could get rid of him. And, and others, the speculation is that at some point Adolf ended up having this thing with Rudolph's, uh, with his wife while he was going to war. And we don't really know. Just in 1948, they split. And this changed the sporting shoe business forever. Because Rudolph Dassler ended up creating Puma. And Adolf, who went by Audi, created a company named Adidas, which for decades functioned out of the same town where the two companies function out of now. It's a little small town in Germany. 
and it split the entire town. When they divided, it split the entire town. If you look at this map right here, there is a river, and I know it's hard to see it. But Adidas was on the north side of town. Puma was on the south side of town. They have stories that say that every family unit living in that town worked for one of the companies. But if you worked for them, you didn't cross into the other town. If you were Adidas family, you only shopped at Adidas stores, Adidas bakeries, Adidas butcher shops, Adidas grocery stores. If you lived on the south side of town, you only shopped at Puma places. You didn't cross Mary, so you wouldn't be married to somebody who worked for a brand you didn't work for. It was a city that was divided by two brands. And this went on for years. In 2009, there was finally an effort of reconciliation where there was a soccer match in which Puma and Adidas came together and they didn't play Puma versus Adidas. They mixed up the teams and put both brands. And if you were to drive to this or travel to this small town today, you would see that most places carry both brands. In fact, the governor of this small town keeps both brands where he doesn't wear them at the same time but one day you'll see them in Puma and one day you'll see them in Adidas so next time you go buy shoes and you're looking in a shoe section and you see Adidas and you see Puma next to each other next to each other or you may be holding a bag of one or the other I want you to think about these two businesses happen because there are two brothers who couldn't get along who in 1948 hated each other so bad. They couldn't do business. They couldn't do life. There was no effort of unity, and it divided a town for generations. This has happened in companies. It's happened in businesses. It's happened with inheritances, like sibling rivalry, relational rivalry, dysfunction, and it happens with Jacob and Laban. At the very end of Jacob's time with Laban, 20 years go by. After 20 years, Jacob decides, I've had enough. And God told Jacob, it's time for you to go home. So Jacob took his two wives, maidservants, and all of his children. Think about it. All of his children were born within those 20 years. So they're about to travel with a bunch of young kids all across the country. And as they leave, Laban hears that they left. Laban comes and chases them down. There's about to be civil war and conflict. And then here's the story you get in Genesis chapter 31, beginning in verse 43. Laban said this to Jacob. The women are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now and let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and he said to his relatives, Gather some stones. So they took stones, piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. They couldn't even agree on the name. One of them was like, We're going to call it this, and the other one was like, No, we're going to call it this. In verse 48, Laban said, this heap is a witness. It's called the heap of witness between you and me today. And that's why it's called Galid. It was also called Mizpah. Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives besides my, beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. 
Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar I've set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of, the father, of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a mill. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. And early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then he left and returned home. They set up what is called a heap of witness. And this wasn't just a witness of a relationship, like to be brought back together. This, though, I, I don't want you to think so much reconciliation. Basically, this was, hey, here's a heap of witness so that we don't kill each other. And it was also a heap of witness to say goodbye to one another. This was a goodbye moment. And this was a heap, this was an altar that in a way was saying, look, we can no longer go back to what our relationship used to look like. There's really no way forward, so you stay on your side. I'm going to stay on my side, and we're not going to cross past this heap where we're ever going to engage in battle. We're not going to let our anger, our hostility, our hatred spill over past this heap of witness. And I know there's a place in some of your lives and in the world for a heap of witness today. Because some of us know we just, we can't go back and we can't keep doing life like we've done it. And maybe there's some relationships like we just can't go on this way. And maybe there needs to be something like a heap of witness. And though there was something for you to learn from this story and maybe some ways for you to apply this in your life, I don't think for Christ followers, this needs to be the story that defines how we move forward in relationships that are difficult. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. And here's the thing. I, I mean, I hope this makes sense. I think there are far too many people in our culture and in our churches who have settled for a heap of witness and not a cross of witness. They've settled for what you read about in Genesis 31. Here's a heap of witness that basically just says, we're not going to harm each other anymore. When Jesus calls us to a cross of witness that says, I'm not going to live with an ethic of just not trying to hate a certain person or a certain group of people, I'm going to live with an ethic of radical love and taking the extra step and crossing the line for relational connection. And there may be some relationships, even in your life, that you don't need to go back to what they used to be like, and there's really no way to do that. So much of this is that you're not going to allow your heart to be someone who is filled with hatred, bitterness, animosity, whether it's to one individual or a whole group of people. Our ethic isn't a heap of witness trying to keep us from doing harm to others. Our ethic is a cross of witness that has totally, has totally transformed our heart to empty us of anything that doesn't reflect the greatness of Jesus. 
So I don't know what you want to do with Genesis 31 or this altar that's built. And God, I don't know what you want to do with us through it. Can we bow our heads and let's pray? I pray right now, God, a prayer of emptying. Just that you will empty us. Anyone in this space today, anyone who's participating in this worship service, where there are emotions inside of us, maybe some emotions that have been there for 20 years that don't reflect who you are, God, will you empty us of it? Empty us of any form of hatred or animosity or bitterness that has grown inside of us, whether it's toward a person, toward a group of people, toward a past experience. We just ask for you to redeem it. Church, if you have the bread and the cup, I want you to hold it if it's there next to you. If you're at home, if you're able to take them, if, it, if the elements are close to you, take hold of those. But here in this prayer, I want to hold this before God. I want you to think about a cross of witness. Jesus went all in with radical love. Where his body, his blood was not given just for a few people. It was given for an entire world. It was given to make all things right. I mean, this today helped make our hearts right. Maybe, just maybe today, there's one relationship represented in this room that needs to be made right in this moment. Provides you with the strength and the grace and the motivation to move forward and to take that step. Right now, God, as we reflect and we move into a new week, we pause to take a bread and the cup, the most important meal we take every week, a meal that celebrates a moment of history, but a meal that also reminds us that this is a story that is still unfolding and we're invited to be a part of it. And we give you thanks now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please take the bread and take the cup.